When this world is all you have, when it's all you know, you focus on it. You need it to be perfect in its distribution of stuff. Because if it doesn't, the haves will have, the have-nots will have not. And nobody likes to be without. Perhaps you can appreciate as a believer the fact that the world is fighting to get its share because it doesn't have anything else. There is no hope for tomorrow and certainly no hope for after death. If this world is all you have, if this world is all you're ever going to get, then you need to get as much as you can, as fast as you can, because you know that you can leave this world at any moment. When you focus on the world, it's about the flesh. The body calls the body, the human body, the Bible calls the flesh, that part of man that gets pleasure. It's very easy for the human body to become addicted to pleasure. There's actually a technical term for it, hedonism. Hedonism is the, the belief that pleasure or happiness is the chief good in life. It's the goal. It's all that's really important. I was just blown away watching a program called My 600-Pound Life. I was shocked to realize that it's been on for eight years and that each show depicts the life of a the life of an obese person for a year as they go to Dr. Now is what he's called on the show as he tries to help these people regain mobility and quality of life. It's just unimaginable to me that a person could allow themselves to get so big that they can't even get out of the bed. There's nothing more disgusting to me than not being able to clean myself once I go to the bathroom. And for me to go to the bathroom on myself, that is, it's, it's just beyond comprehension to me. 
Yet many of the people that are depicted on this program are so obese. Um, many of them that they're just not able to take care of themselves. You feel sorry. You feel pity. You feel that you just want to do something. When you watch a show like that, you're looking at the human body given what it pleasures most. In their case, it's food. They love food. But the problem is just as bad for those who so addicted to sex that they'll do anything to get it. They don't care where, when, or how, or with whom. Or those who are addicted to drugs, whether they're pain pills, prescriptions, or illegal drugs. At the end of the day, whether it's sex, food, drugs, or whatever you want to put in the blank, it's about pleasure. For Christians, we're not immune. We're not immune to it. But we recognize that there is something greater than this world. In fact, the Bible promises those who trust in Christ can be assured of the resurrection from the dead. Now, every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl is going to be resurrected, whether you believe in Jesus or not. But to be resurrected, to face an eternity of pain, is not my idea of a good future. We're talking about the resurrection from the dead in order to live in God's presence forever. And the Bible says or teaches that there's going to be a temporary period before the eternal state, a kingdom of Christ on earth. Every person, man, woman, has an opportunity to be a part of the sovereign administration of God. That is, you have an opportunity to be part of the people who run the kingdom. There are rewards for faithful Christians, and those rewards are pretty exciting. You actually will have an opportunity to sit on a golden throne with power to rule as a reward for being faithful during your Christian life. It's hard to imagine, and yet it is a reality. Sadly, like everything else in life, there is a hitch. 
You want to be a part of the sovereign administration of God? You've got to earn it. It's not free and it's not automatic. Now, probably some of you are used to thinking that it is. After all, you get to enjoy what you did not earn. That's kind of the way we we roll. Fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, you got to earn it. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 through 28 says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. This is a promise, but did you notice there was a hitch? You've got to be a conqueror. You have to keep God's word until the end. The word conquer here is nakao, the Greek. It means to, to be a victor, to be victorious. One who is victorious, an overcomer, is how it's translated in some Bibles. You could use the English word that we get from this Greek word, which is a Nike. The one who is a Nike is one who keeps God's word until the end. Being an overcomer is not automatic. You're going to have to work for that. And sadly, ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you, there are an awful lot of people who say they are Christians, but I don't see victory anywhere near them or their lives. You need to know the Bible demands, yea, it paints a picture of having to work hard to get it. It no less uses Jesus as our example. Jesus had to win the right to rule. That is to exercise sovereign authority. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was his joy? It says, who for the joy that was set before him. I believe that Jesus saw the reward for his suffering, that he would be seated at the right hand of God Almighty, and that he would be given authority to reign on the earth. It was a joy. He kept it focused and centered, and that propelled him to endure the cross, even though it was the most shameful, despicable experience God could ever experience. Now, let me ask you, do you really believe that you have a right to expect to reign, to rule, having suffered nothing more than a hangnail? Maybe a few disappointments here and there because you didn't get the stuff you maybe wanted? Do you really think that that justifies you sitting beside Jesus as a victor? A lot of Christians think so. I think they do it out of ignorance. They don't know any better. Or they do it because somebody told them. But in reality, it is not true. My goal is to help you get there. If you want to know what you personally need to do in order to guarantee that you will be victorious and able to sit beside Christ on a throne that rules the nations with the power to put people to death. That's what Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, that's what it means. The one who conquers, the one who is a Nike and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he or she will rule them with a rod of iron. Meaning you have the power to punish The Sermon on the Mount is the clearest, most concise definition of the will of God in the Bible. If you want to know the things that you need to do in order to please God, to make him happy with your life, all you need is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount will not tell you how to be saved from your sin, but it will tell you how to live your life in a way that is 
very pleasing to God and will result in you being rewarded. The Sermon on the Mount is the clearest, most concise definition of the will of God for man in the Bible. So you say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments uh, is right up there with it. But Jesus ex expanded upon it. He gave more definition. And he gave us the the promise that by living according to the rules and regs of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be rewarded with the right to reign. That was not attached to the Ten Commandments. You will want to enter which basically means participate in the sovereign administration of God. If you want to enter, quote unquote, that is participate in the sovereign administration of God, obey the Sermon on the Mount. Now, sadly, the Sermon on the Mount has been, for the most part, for a very long time, distorted. Sadly, no sermon of Jesus has been more abused in its interpretation than the Sermon on the Mount. For 1,000 years, it was locked in darkness by the church. It was written in Latin, and the only people who could read it were the priest. The average church-going pew-setter couldn't even read it, let alone interpret it, understand it, and live by it. Then came Martin Luther and the quote-unquote Reformation, only to see it locked in darkness again. This time it was declared to be the teachings of Jesus for the Jews only. Over the history of this sermon, there have been various ways to supposedly understand it. There is what is called the kingdom view. The kingdom view taught that the Sermon on the Mount was for Israel and Israel only, the Jews. Jesus preached it to the Jews and said, okay, this is how you're going to live in the kingdom. He offered them the kingdom. They rejected the kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount basically became a sermon that would be filed away because the people for whom it was intended rejected it, and therefore it has no benefits. And there are many American Christians who were taught this and saw no value for the Sermon on the Mount other than 
This is something Jesus said. Many rejected that, didn't make any sense, really. So they came up with what is called the penitential view. The penitential view says that the Sermon on the Mount was given to lead people to repentance. That is, as people heard it or read it, they would realize that they are so incapable of living at such a high standard that they would need help from God. It would lead them to understand that they needed something else, that they didn't have enough. Yet, close examination reveals that nothing in the Sermon on the Mount tells a person how to be saved. There's nothing in it. There's nothing that tells you how to get your sins forgiven. There's nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin in the Sermon on the Mount. Not one word. In fact, if you had it, it would tell you how to live to please God, but it wouldn't tell you how to get your sins forgiven, which, of course, all of us know all of us would commit. That view was re rejected by some, and they came up with what is called the interim ethic view. This view says uh, people are to live until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is a prescription for how you need to live until Jesus comes. But once Jesus comes and he does his thing, then you won't need to live by the Sermon on the Mount anymore. You'll be in the kingdom, and the kingdom operates according to a different set of standards. This is called the interim ethic. It's here for the period while Jesus is going away. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, some of those who espoused these views came up with what they called the believer's ethic view. Uh, this They say all believers at all times should live by the principles in the Sermon on the Mount. That it's a prescription for how to live your life to please God. Now, in a way, that's just true. The problem is that it doesn't talk about why. What's the ultimate goal of benefit? The Sermon on the Mount outlines the requisites to reign in the kingdom with Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew took the Jesus material and reshaped it to give us insight into the coming rule of Jesus Christ. The purpose of this podcast is to teach you how to guarantee that you will rule with Christ. How to make sure that you are in the sovereign administration 
of Jesus Christ. Because that's what Christ is doing right now. He went to receive a kingdom. And while he's gone, he left his people to work. The degree to which you are faithful will determine what he will give you the right to do in his kingdom when he gets back. How you live your life, what you do, will determine your position of authority in his kingdom. It is a false notion that all Christians will reign, that is, be an authority. Let me say that again. It is a false notion that all Christians, regardless of how you lived, whether you were faithful, unfaithful, whether you were a good or a bad, or whether you gave in, gave up, or gave out, you're going to be right there seated with Christ on his throne. That is a false notion, ladies and gentlemen. It is not true. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul states, through many tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. How many tribulations have you had? By the way, Paul was beaten. He was killed. He was stoned. He was run out of from city to city. He was threatened, hungry, wet. I mean, compare your life to the apostle Paul and tell me that you feel justified. Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You want to know what the will of God is? Sermon on the Mount. Now, the real problem here is the word enter, because when we use the word enter, we automatically assume that it means locality. We're talking local, that is. You, you, you enter a house. You were on the outside physically, you entered it, now you're physically on the inside. And so when we use the word enter, we always think of moving from one place to another physically. And so when we think of the kingdom, we think about going into a physical place. But that's not how the word enter is used. And we use the word correctly without knowing it. For example, Someone offers you the chance to enter a contest. They ask you, would you like to enter? And you say, well, what do I have to do? And they say, well, you have to give us some information. You fill out this piece of paper with your name and address and phone number, and we're going to put your name in this basket, and then we're going to draw a name, and whoever name is drawn wins. You entered a contest. You didn't physically enter it. You entered it in the sense that you are going to participate in the drawing so that you might win. You know, I, 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 I had a chance to win one time um, in my town growing up as a kid. They had this contest at the Piggly Wiggly. And uh, every week you, you had a card and every... Every week you were supposed to go into the Piggly Wiggly 
And if you were buying something, you didn't have to buy anything, but you needed to get your card punched. And if you had it punched on the Friday afternoon, about four o'clock, they would call, they would draw a name and then whoever name was drawn could win $500. And sure enough, I remember it as plain as day. One Friday after school, but before football, we had a football game, a home game. And I drove by the Piggly Wiggly and it, and it said, I said, go in and get your card punched. But I was in a hurry. I decided, well, I don't want to do that. And so I didn't. And wouldn't you know it, the one time that I didn't get it punched, my name was called. People started calling me and everybody was congratulating me. Uh, they called my house and they, they said, wow, you won, you won, $500, you won. And when I realized what they were talking about, I realized I did not win because I didn't stop to get my card punched. When the Bible says enter the kingdom of God, it's not talking about physically entering. It's talking about participating in it. The Bible sets conditions for participating in the kingdom. Jesus is the king, is his kingdom. And right now he's giving you an opportunity to be part of the leadership. If you want to be in his kingdom, not as one ruled over, but one of the ruling class, you're going to have to earn it. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, verse 20, if I tell you, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never participate in its leadership, my friend. He's not talking about whether or not you're saved. He's talking about whether or not you earn the right to rule. Just as it says that Jesus had the joy set before him. What joy? The joy of hearing his daddy say, well done, and being given the right to sit on his daddy's throne with him. If you want to be able to sit on Christ's throne with him, if Jesus had to go to Calvary to die, my friend, you better make sure you did as much as is comparable to what he, Paul, Peter, James, John did. It should be the most preeminent thought on your mind, on in your mind. In fact, in the prayer that Jesus used as an example about how to pray, you remember what he said? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I can tell you this. There's no rebellion in heaven. 
Jesus said, you ought to want the same kind of society that is in heaven on earth. What role will you play when the kingdom comes?